Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text for this Transfiguration Sunday is taken from the reading in the Gospel of Mark. We begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, what a joy it is to know the glory of your salvation. And yet, Lord, we cannot know that glory apart from the cross of your Son. And so we pray this day that as we hear this message, you would teach us to speak only of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen for our salvation. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Much has been made of this new phenomenon, I guess, that we are experiencing now, known as the cancel culture. Now, now you probably have heard of the cancel culture, and if you haven't, let me kind of try and define it for you. The idea behind the cancel culture is this, is that those people who are sort of controlling the culture, those people who are in power and have the most influence, when they hear somebody speaking in a way that offends them or upsets them or, or hurts their feelings, what they do is they find a way to silence that person. They cancel them. They prevent them from speaking. And now we're all very upset about this right now, and it's bothering all of us a great deal. Now, it doesn't bother us so much if we're the ones in charge and we're the ones telling others to be quiet. Then we totally love the cancel culture. But when we're the ones being silenced, well, now we're very upset and very offended that any of this is sort of happening. Now, I kind of talk about that a little bit tongue-in-cheek there, but I do think that there are some things for us to think about in this cancel culture. Because to be sure, there are things that are being spoken that I wish weren't being said. And I'm sure you have the same feeling. And yet at the same time, we in the church, we, we probably should be paying attention to this sort of thing. Because quite frankly, our bread and butter in the church, our whole existence in the church is based on what people say. Specifically, the gospel. The whole foundation of our church is the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we believe that it is the message of the gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ, for the sake of sinners, we believe that it is that message that needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. For God's reign is one that spreads by means of a word. It doesn't spread by, by power and might, by winning wars and conquering territories. It spreads by speaking a message. So we want that message to be spoken. We want the amazing things of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed to the world. We want the miracles and the work and the glory of Christ to be announced to everyone. So the question is, why would anybody want them to be silenced about this? Why would anybody want us to be quiet? Why, uh, who would want us to be quiet about the amazing message of Christ's glory? Well, as we come to our reading from the gospel today, the answer is right there for us. The answer is Jesus. Jesus, it seems, is the one telling his disciples to be quiet about his glory in our reading today. And that's really kind of a surprising thing. It actually seems kind of odd, especially after what the disciples have just been through. I mean, they've experienced one of the most glorious occurrences in the history of the world. And you would think that after being there, they would want to tell everybody about what they have seen. 
I always think, like, this is one of those times I really wish I was following St. Peter on Instagram, right? Like, you can just picture Peter up there on the mountain with his disciples. He's got his phone out. He's got Moses and Elijah behind him, and Jesus is glowing, and James and John are there kind of giving him one of these things. And, and everyone's all thrilled because of what they're seeing there on the mountain. I would love that you have seen that picture. And to think about God showing up in his, his terrifying glory. And Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus as he exudes this glory from his body. And yeah, Peter kind of stumbles over his words, but he experiences something that nobody almost anywhere has ever experienced. And then God speaks to them and says, look, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This whole experience is so overwhelming. You know they want to tell somebody. And after it's all said and done, they see no one but Jesus only. You know, you know they're itching to talk about this. Actually, on the radio this morning, I heard uh, the radio announcer ask this question. If you could uh, climb Mount Everest, but you were never allowed to tell anybody about it, would you do it? I mean, I don't think I know if I would. I mean, I would want to brag about that all the time. And I imagine that's how Peter and James and John are feeling. Like they got to see all of this, this terrifying and thrilling glory of God. This is something to be experienced, to be spoken of, to be marveled at, to be in awe of. The glory of Christ, the presence of his Father. And Jesus says, keep quiet about it. As they were coming down the mountain, Mark writes, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why? Why not tell everyone? Why not broadcast this before the world? Well, perhaps we could think about it kind of along these lines. I don't have uh, uh, basic cable anymore, so I don't see a lot of basic cable news. So I don't know if they still advertise this way, but I remember for years watching the news on TV, and in order to advertise how great the news was on their station, the stations would, would say in their commercials something like this, watch Channel 4 News, for we were the first ones to tell you about the uh, results of the election, or, or don't miss Channel 7, eyewitness breaking news, for we were the ones who broke the story about the birth of the baby panda down at the San Diego Zoo, or, or something like this. And they would try and draw you in by letting you know that they were the first to report seems that in the media bragging rights are to be had by those who report the story first the first one to the story wins now that's a really interesting way of advertising and i think it's kind of curious uh, but in a certain sense i want to say so what so what if you get to the story first getting the story first isn't what matters it's getting the story right what matters is, is the story accurate? Is it true? I wonder if this isn't why so many news stations now have developing stories because they don't want to be delayed in reporting the story. They don't want to be bogged down by things like accuracy or facts. So they just want to tell you there's a story developing and we're following the story. Because being first, that's what matters. But of course, as we just said, it doesn't matter. Being first doesn't mean you have all the facts, and it certainly doesn't mean you have the whole story or an accurate story. Being first actually means nothing if what you're saying is an accurate, incomplete, or worse, misleading. Before a story is reported, you need the whole story. You need as many facts as you can possibly have, and you want to have the whole thing. 
Well, it strikes me that perhaps the problem with the media, Jesus realizes, is the same problem that his disciples have. The disciples are people who want to be first among everyone else. And at this point, they don't have the whole story. They don't know all the facts. So, I mean, let's think about this for a second. First, the disciples have this constant problem of wanting to be first and before everyone else. Peter, who clearly stands out as the spokesman for all the apostles, uh, has this problem of always wanting to buddy up to Jesus and always wanting to kind of be, be above the other guys. And we know for certain James and John, who are also on that mountain, we know for certain that they have that problem because just in a few chapters, they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to ask him, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and the other one on your left? We want to be the vice president and the vice messiah. Like, we want to be right next to you, Jesus. It's as if these guys actually want to replace Moses and Elijah on that mountain. And if they come down the mountain boasting of this experience, what they're probably going to end up doing is boasting about their experience and lording it over the others. And Jesus simply won't have this. For Jesus calls his disciples to operate in a different fashion than the rest of the world. Jesus calls us as his church to operate in a different fashion. He calls us not to strive to be first and to lord ourselves over others, but to be servants of all and to sacrifice for the sake of others. We all know his phrase, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's in just a few chapters where Jesus will say this, Whoever would be great among you must become your servant, and whoever, be, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you have to ask yourself a hard question today. Is that what you do? And is that what you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are known for? Do you strive to be first and lord yourself over others? Or do you work hard to kind of stay in the background and just serve and sacrifice who you are so others can be exalted? Oh, the disciples certainly had to wrestle with that. And one has to wonder if we in the church understand that this is our role in the world as well. And one has to wonder, is, is this what the church is known for right now in our society? Or is the church known for being this, this institution that is constantly vying for power and influence? To be sure, Jesus calls us to be salt and light and to fight for work of mercy and, 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 and justice. But instead, I fear that far too often we find the church clamoring for power and self-serving security. Because I keep hearing so many Christians, Christians bemoan the fact that we're losing our cultural influence. And now that such and such a person has a position of authority, or now that such and such a person is in office, now we've lost all of our cultural influence, and all of Christianity seems to be lost. When in reality, regardless of who is in office, regardless of who has the power in our society, our responsibility as Christians has never changed. And we are still called to serve, and we are still called uh, to sacrifice for the sake of others. And perhaps, just perhaps, losing our position of power and being placed last in society is exactly what the church needs to be reminded of our responsibility to love and serve and sacrifice for others, just as Christ has done for us. The church is not called to lord herself over others, but to love and serve, even as Jesus Christ loved and serves you and me. 
And it's that love and service of Jesus, that work of Jesus that is known primarily through his sacrificial work for sinners on the cross. It is that work that I think prevents Jesus from letting the disciples speak at this point. Because they don't know that work yet. They don't know the whole story. If they had walked down the mountain and begun boasting of the incredible experience without the whole context, they would have completely misrepresented Christ. Notice again what Jesus says to them. He doesn't say never ever speak about this to anyone. But he does say you are not to speak of this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And to prove that they weren't ready to talk about this, the very next verse tells us that (laughs) they have no idea what he's talking about. They begin to discuss among themselves what he might mean by this resurrection business. So that to boast of Jesus in his glory without knowing of the cross or resurrection is to completely misrepresent Christ. Because Jesus doesn't come to show off his glory. He comes to die. And Peter can never truly talk about being a leader in the church until he sees his own leader, his own Lord, suffering and dying for the sake of sinners. And James and John cannot properly speak of what it means to be seated on Christ's right and left until they see him crucified between two thieves. And you and I cannot ever speak or know of what it means to follow Jesus Christ until we take up a cross. And follow him to Golgotha where he bleeds and dies for our salvation. In other words, we cannot know the glory of God properly until we have received the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now, of course, we have received that. You and I know that grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it is this gracious Jesus then who comes to the disciples from the cross and the empty tomb and changes everything they know and everything they think. And it's the same that he has done for you and me. I mean, think about Peter. Peter, at this point in the gospel, he's coming down and he's really full of himself and he's really high on himself. But the way we get the story is he kind of looks like a bumbling fool. Because the way Peter tells the story now is not, look at this glorious experience that I got to have, but, oh man, we were on that mountain, and I was terrified, and I started saying stuff that made me look really bad. Why can Peter talk this way? Because he knows that he is a sinner who has a patient Jesus. He can point us to his foolishness and his, his bad moves. Because all that ends up doing is pointing, him, uh, pointing us to that Jesus who forgives him, who is patient with him, who loves him and carries him. As Christians, we're in the same boat as Peter. As the church of God, as brothers and sisters of Peter and James and John, we can speak in the same way because with Peter, James, and John, we know Jesus. We live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. We as the church know and believe that we have a Jesus who is not only glorious and powerful, but was crucified and risen. And we know what he's done for us. We know the pains he suffered, the depths he entered, the blood he poured out just to make us his own. He's done all of this for you so that you know the miraculous hope that you as a sinner have in Jesus Christ. And you know he's given it all to you. This is what you know, and now as the church of God, this is what we are to be known for. 
not for ourselves and our power and our security and our amazing experiences and our gifts and our talents and all of this. No. We're to be known for nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him risen. And Jesus Christ and Him ruling and reigning in mercy and love. And knowing this, Jesus would have us be quiet no longer. We are called to shout it from the mountaintops that God forgives sinners. Jesus died for you. The tomb is empty. And the crucified Lord is now risen. And He rules and reigns. And it is his glory to show you love and mercy. How can we keep silent with that? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the forgiveness and the mercy that you have shown to us. We thank you, Jesus, that we know you as crucified and risen. And now, Lord, we pray that we would be known as those who do nothing but proclaim this message for the salvation and the hope of the world. Let your will be done for us here, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.